everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. Welcome, everybody, to your podcast of music discovery. Ooh, nice. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, as always, your premier source for music-related podcasts. As a matter of fact, they are not only home to us, but also home to our spin-off podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz. That podcast is a 16-part series introducing you not only to some of the legendary jazz artists of the 20th century, but some of their music interwoven with some great personal stories as well. Yeah. That series is hosted by Audio Judo show consultant Chris and can be found anywhere that podcasts are podcast, including Apple. It can now, yes. Uh, we hope you will get a listen and join Chris in the discussion. Today... What are we talking about, Kyle? Today, we are talking about Metallica's Ride the Lightning. Oof, yes, the harvester of sorrows, the <laughs> master of puppets, the load and the reload. You know, I could have picked any of those Metallica. albums to talk about Metallica. <laughs> uh, I picked this one, though, because it's uh, it really is my favorite Metallica album. Is that true? It is. All right. And I know I can tell already. Hey, whoa, whoa, you, whoa don't I, judge me. I'm going to prejudge you. Uh, oh, my God. I can tell that you're not a big fan of this album, and that's fine. It, this album... Not for everybody. And right up front, I do think we need to go over something. What are we going over? Uh, we get to talk a little bit about medical, metal fans, Met specifically oh. Metallica fans. Yeah, I have that. Some of them are very lovely people. Sure, I have it uh, in a row, interwoven. That's the second time I've used it. I have that uh, threaded throughout ooh. this whole uh, this whole episode. That type of fan. Yeah, they are. Um, most of them very nice people. Very fun to hang out with awesome to go to concerts with yes uh they're also all very detail oriented i have found yes and very pedantic about those details they can be pedantic um so i'm gonna say it up front we're probably gonna get some shit wrong here oh without a doubt I, I'm, we're gonna say some stuff that it's gonna be like actually that quote was attributed to so and so and such and such a date at such the time that's fine uh i believe we we may we're probably gonna run into this problem with we recorded a Marillion episode yes, we there's did. gonna be similar issues because the the fans uh in the word i use later on is ravenous mm -hmm. oh that's a perfect word they they uh, absorb and and devour all things metallica and yes very opinionated and very detail oriented and uh we're gonna get shit wrong oh yeah and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so when you first proposed we do a Metallica album, I was fairly sure that uh, you were going to settle on the Black Album or maybe even Meh. Master of Puppets. Meh. Uh, there was even the off chance that we might get to rip part one and talk about the steel snare drum of St. Anger or mm. perhaps even the ridiculousness of uh, the Lulu album with Lou Reed. <sighs> what the hell was that all about? I don't know. Uh, I'm all for taking chances and being experimental, but uh, that may be one of the oddest combinations in rock history oh yeah and one of the worst as well a for effort f for execution <laughs> uh, but no kyle decided to go back to right near the beginning and yep. ride the lightning it's an excellent choice kyle oh and so i feel like it's a safe that. one because it's certainly not a polarizing choice true for for fans if you like metallica or uh you probably like or maybe even love yeah. this record. So uh, before we start to break down this record, we should go back and dig a little deeper with the creators of the record, yeah. uh, Metallica. Metallica, formed in 1981 in Los Angeles, which was weird to me because they are so well known as a San Francisco Correct. area band. Bay Area. Uh, that I was surprised they formed in Los Angeles. Um, Lars Ulrich placed an advertisement in an area newspaper called The Recycler, which sounds to me like the type of newspaper you would see in a cartoon landing a birdcage. <laughs> or like they put down so a puppy can pee on it. I have, like I'm as a familiar. joke. Like, yes. <laughs> it's the recycler. It's the recycler. 
Uh, but the the ad said, uh, drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with. Tigers of Penang, Pantang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden. I like those one are, of those. Those are all metal bands, by the way, in case anybody didn't know. Yes, I like one of those. Uh, I'm going to guess Tigers of Pantang. No. <laughs> Diamond Head. No. Oh. Uh, that Try other, again. That other one nobody's ever heard of. Yes, Iron, that's the- Iron Maiden? Yes. Okay. Uh, James Hetfield, a guitarist, answered the advertisement, along with a guy named Hugh Tanner of the band Leather Charm. Mm-hmm. Um, Lars asked his friend, um, I'm sorry, Lars asked Metal Blade Records founder, uh, Brian Slagle, uh, who was his friend, if they could record a song for their upcoming compilation album called Metal Massacre, which they did. And that song was Hit the Lights. Correct. And, and at the time, Lars had little or no experience playing drums oh, yeah. whatsoever he could- and had absolutely no band mm-hmm. to record with. When he asked Brian Slagle that is correct, for yes. a slot on this record. He sort of had some uh, uh, casual acquaintances who were like, oh, you can play the guitar and I ha- own a drum set. So let's see what happens. Well, Ulrich <laughs> was born in Denmark to uh, professional tennis playing parents. Uh, he had moved to California at the age of 16 to prefer- pursue a career himself in professional tennis. Uh, however, after attending a Deep Purple concert at like 12 or 13, his interests had slid elsewhere into music. However, he wasn't a musician yet. (laughs) (laughs) And may not still be, depending upon who you ask. Uh, We're going to get... Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No offense. Again, no offense intended. Here's the thing, man. (laughs) For somebody who started out not being able to play the drums, he's now a billionaire, probably. He's done a fine job. He's at least a hundred millionaire, for sure. Um. He's so, carved out a hell of a career for himself. He has carved out a hell of a career, and I can't knock him for that. No. So, uh, 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 Brian Slagle accepted mm-hmm. that request, and the band was officially formed on October 28, 1981, a full five months after they met. Yes. Guitarist Dave Mustaine was, the next, he was, he was the next to join after responding to an ad for a lead guitarist. Both Hetfield and Ulrich were impressed with his significant investment in gear. Yeah, which is obviously the way you want to pick a guitar player. Why He's you... got a lot of cool shit. That's some nice shit you got there. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, hire you. Yeah. Uh, you can't really play. Actually, he could. But the gear was what impressed him. So the last member to join at that time was bassist Ron McGovney. Uh, the name of the band came from a brainstorming session with one of Ulrich's friends, Ron Quintana who was trying to think of names for his fanzine. Uh, he was down to two names, <laughs> Metal Mania and Metallica. And Ulrich wanted that Metallica name for the band, so he told Quintana to go with Metal Mania for your fanzine. You go, with that, go with that crappy one, and we'll, we'll take Metallica. And the rest is, a, as they say, is history. Right. Uh, they recorded a, a demo tape called Power Metal mm-hmm. in 1982 that got uh, passed around quite a bit. Um, and in late 1982, Lars and James saw bassist Cliff Burton of the band Trauma play at the Whiskey A Go Go. I think uh, it's pronounced Trauma. Trauma. If you're British, it's Trauma. Uh, <laughs> they were absolutely blown away uh, by his use of a wah wah pedal and asked him to join Metallica. Uh, James and Dave felt that Ron McGovney didn't contribute to the band; he just followed. So right, they- because as we will come to find out, Hetfield and Ulrich, who are not only best friends but are raging type A personalities. Oh God, yeah. And would lead to a never-ending power struggle within the group. Um, uh, Burton initially declined the offer to join the band. Mm-hmm. He eventually accepted on the condition that the band moved to El Cerrito, California. Right, which is a... <laughs> Closer to the Bay Area. Yeah. 
He's basically saying, uh, I'm a pretty awesome bass player. I'll be in your band, but I'm not doing it down here in L.A. L.A. sucks. Let's go up to the Bay Area. Yeah. And they're like, okay. So uh, after that, they begin recording their first studio album, which was initially titled Metal Up Your Ass. That's a metal name. Uh, in May 1983 in Rochester, New York. Uh, and obviously, this became a very famous thing later on. On April 11th, 1983, um, during the recording of that album, uh, Dave Mustaine's alcohol and drug problems finally pushed them over the limit to say, get the fuck out of here. And he also like was prone to violence. That's true. In the studio. Well, the drugs and alcohol <laughs> led to the violence. Yes, it was it was a drug and alcohol-fueled violence. Uh, but they literally put him on a bus back to San Francisco. It's, they were literally like, here's a bus ticket. Get the fuck out of here. You're gone. Um, thankfully, they were able, Lars and James were able to call their friend Kirk Hammett from the band Exodus uh, to come and replace him. And literally, he showed up that afternoon. On the same day they the fired Mustaine. On the same Mustaine. day they fired Mustaine and started recording. And they had a live concert five days later yeah. at the show uh, showplace in Dover, New Jersey. And we don't feel completely horrible for Dave Mustaine. He would eventually go on to found Megadeth. Uh, and while they didn't find the massive success that Metallica did... Uh, oh, dude, they did find a great deal big. of success over the years. Yeah. Uh, Plus, I mean, he totally got over it very quickly and has never held he, a grudge. He hasn't held a grudge oh. at all. Oh, wait a second. No, I'm sorry. I meant the other thing where he held a giant grudge and still is bitter about it to this day. For not being invited to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, you did Little things. Little yeah, things. it's no big deal. So, Metal Up Your Ass Metal would Up Your be ass. renamed... Kill them all. Kill them all. The debut record of Metallica released in July of '83. It would eventually chart in 1986, mm -hmm. riding the wave of Metallica's future records. Yes. So this album. Oh, I got a couple more facts for you, real quick. Please before do. We get to this album. Oh, please do. Uh, so from the beginning, that those beginnings. Let me do that one more time. So from those beginnings, Metallica would go on to release ten studio albums. Four live albums, a cover album, five EPs, 37 singles, and 39 music videos. 125 million records mm -hmm. sold worldwide. Nine Grammy Awards, 23 nominations. Their last six records, beginning with the 1991 release Metallica or the Black Album, have all debuted at number one on the Billboard Top 200. And as of 2017, they are the third best-selling music artist, according to the Nielsen SoundScan, with 58 million oh. albums sold in the U.S. They've recorded with a symphony. Mm -hmm. They've had a successful documentary made about them. Yes, they have. They've gone through tremendous tragedy and roster switches and substance abuse mm -hmm. and, and masses, massive successes that no metal band before or since has ever seen. Yeah. I can I can highly recommend, and I know we've talked about this a little bit before, uh, the documentary you just spoke of, Some Kind of Monster. Yep. Is amazing. It is. It fantastic. is a great documentary about the making of their 2003 album Saint Anger, mm -hmm. um, which I hate. I hate the album. I think it's terrible. But the documentary. <laughs> Lots of people think it's terrible. The documentary is amazing, and it's it's a cool little snippet of what happens when it all breaks down. Yeah, it's not just a documentary. It's it's a almost a daily diary. Yeah. Of of splintering groups, splintering personal issues uh, and being brought back together by the music. And it's unfortunate they didn't make a better record, but you know, we're just glad that they're still making music. So yeah. So there's one other thing we got to talk about sure. before we get into this album in particular. Okay. Uh, a little bit about why I picked this album yeah. and my history with Metallica. So I have this weird memory. You know, Do you have like, I've never been able to come up with a better way to describe it than keyframe memories. 
Mm-hmm. Very so much so. Every once in a while, you will have like you know blank periods where you're like, I don't know what I did for these long periods of my life, but you have really standout memories that happen. And a lot of times they're really important things, you know, oh, I remember this birthday party, I remember my wedding, I remember this, I remember that. And other times they are absolutely the weirdest, most mundane, stupid bullshit that you you don't remember. You, you can't think of like, why is this a stuck memory in my head? For sure. So for some reason, I remember uh, the first time Metallica sort of came into my life was... Uh, when load and reload were both out, mm-hmm. my mom was buying them, and I can't remember which of my cousins it was. It was either my cousin Scott or my cousin Craig. Um, they're brothers. They're a couple of years apart. She was buying the CD of either load or reload, or maybe both, for one of their birthdays. It must have been a significant birthday, like a 16 or an 18 or something. We had to go to Sam Goody, which for all of you out there who don't remember, uh, was a store where you had to physically go purchase music. Weird concept, I know. I know, it's weird. Uh, We had to search through, like we had to be like, okay, we have to find the section where all the metal CDs are. We had to search through there to find Metallica, and then you had to search through there to find the right albums. And I remember specifically picking up uh, whichever album, it's either Load or Reload, that has Fuel on it as the opening song on it. Mm. And scanning it, you scanned the barcode on it. And then you put on a set of headphones that were probably filthy. They had probably 5,000 people had worn them before that all had unknown diseases. Gross. Uh, and in the year of COVID, I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. That's nasty. Uh, but you put that headset on and you get to hear little samples of every song on that album. Basically work like iTunes, but not in your house. Exactly. But you have to go to a dirty store and talk to a, <laughs> put on a shitty teenager dirt. who doesn't want to be there. I don't know. It's over there. It's somewhere in the back, man. <laughs> Uh, and then you have to like pick up a physical thing and take it home in order to listen to it. It was shitty. That is uh, shitty. But <laughs> that's how we did it back then. But we bought that album for either my cousin Scott or my cousin Craig. I honestly don't remember which. Um, and sent it to them. But I listened to it while we were in the store. And I remember being like, wow, this is very interesting. I had never heard anything like it before because I wasn't, you know, I mean, I think this was 94, 95, I think is when yeah, they came out. Yeah, load and reload, yeah. I was 10 or, 10 or 11 years old. Hadn't gotten there yet. The other time that Metallica came into my life a few years later in the early 2000s was uh, my friend Dallin, who uh, was very into, he was learning to play the guitar and was very, very into Metallica. Specifically, he was into learning to play Metallica songs on an acoustic guitar. Hmm. And we totally made fun of him for it. Mm. We totally ragged him all the time, and he'd get angry, but like, shut the fuck up, and slam the it's door to his bedroom. Much harder to play on acoustic guitar, right? Slam his bedroom door, and then you'd hear Metallica coming under the door, and be like, "Yeah, you suck, dude," because uh, <laughs> that's the type of horrible human being I was when I was a teenager. That's okay, uh, but we were uh, all horrible because of his. You know, I would just hear little snippets and things, and I was like, "Actually, that kind of sounds cool." And I ended up going and back to Sam Goody and physically purchasing CDs. Going back to Sam Goody. Right here in front of me, Look I at brought, that. brought my physical copy of Ride the Lightning with That's me. That's amazing. On CD. Weird. Do you have a CD player anymore? I have one in my very old computer. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, I can't even fucking play these. I was going to say, like, like one of my computer has one, but I haven't used it in 10 years. Now so. I just use it to hold up the end of a table because it's right? kind of imbalanced. I'll have to. I actually do have a very old um little like boom box that has a CD player in it that I use when like I use the ha- term boom box. You're right? dating you. You're making yourself I'm sound making myself old. sound old. 
Well, I, it, what's funny too is it's such a piece of shit. I use it when I'm like painting a house or like doing yard work or something. This is like pre Bluetooth. Before what's Bluetooth, before Bluetooth existed, you had to like take this with you and put a like tune the radio or put a CD into it or plug your phone into it, into it if you were really lucky. I like that. I'd like that you have a story for this. This is good, right? I, it's going to be a while before we get. I have an origin story as well. But Good. I think we're gonna let's we're just, gonna get to it. Let's just talk a little bit about like so. This album, uh, "Ride the Lightning," was recorded between February and March, yes. nineteen eighty four, in Copenhagen, Denmark. The studio uh, they chose for the record was the sublimely named Sweet Silence Ooh, Studio. Yeah. Uh, the album was produced by the equally awesome named Fleming Rasmussen, right? Who owned the studio? It's Over- also it's also listed as produced by Metallica. Metallica. Well, of course, Ulrich had chosen the studio because he liked the work they had done on the Rainbow album, Difficult to Cure, uh, and the choice was met with some skepticism by the other engineers who worked at the studio as they doubted the talent in the band. So one of the things that began to rear its head at this time was the quality of the timekeeping of the drummer, yes. Lars Ulrich. I knew, so, you were, I knew we were going to get here. We're going to get here, yeah. R- Rasmussen <laughs> noticed from their demos uh, that he had huge difficulties keeping time. He would continue to speed up, which is a common problem with mm-hmm. drummers who haven't studied or practiced meter. Uh, as I was prepping this episode, I talked to some of my drummer friends about Lars because I know he is a bit of a flashpoint. The general consensus is that he gets a lot more credit than he deserves. I would tend to agree with that. Uh, the magazines and critics over the years have called him, quote, the most influential drummer in metal and has culled a lot of favor as the originator of the double bass work that he uses throughout his career. But the drummers, especially those who listen to metal, give the big uh-uh to that notion, <laughs> considering him an average metal drummer at best. And from that era, they regularly cite Dave Lombardo from Slayer, uh, Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden as the far superior drummers. And this is going to keep creeping up a little bit here and there. So I just wanted to set that because because we're gonna we're gonna reference that a few times, I think. That's uh that's fair enough. Um and I I think that go ahead. For me, Lars is a very energetic player. Like you see him just absolutely just beating the shit out of the drums. And oh, he's trying. Sweating. I mean, he must go through twenty gallons of water in a show. Yeah, he's trying his. Yeah. He's trying his damnedest. But I think that a lot of people confuse that with skilled drum playing. What, what the effort? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that. And again, I don't mean to knock the guy. He's been incredibly successful. He's done way more than I ever have. Um, and at the same time. I think that he does get a lot more credit for being this, you know, he's an amazing drummer, but people who actually understand the way the drums are played yeah. and people who understand percussion are like, mm, no. He's an influential musician because yes. he is in a band that has sold 125 million records yeah. and a lot of people have heard it, but that doesn't necessarily reflect his talent level. He's he's good at what he does, but what he does is fairly limited. Yeah. Um. So back to this record. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. That's so okay. the album was released on July 27th, 1984. It was uh, recorded in less than 29 days. Yeah. And so, went over budget as well. Yeah, by what, 10 grand? 10 grand. <laughs> and then they found out that their label, uh, Megaforce Records, mm-hmm. couldn't cover the, the cost. Yeah. So they approached their European label, Music for Nations, another shitty name, to cover the tab. <laughs> um, unhappy with that American situation. 
and the lack of promotion, Metallica decided to part ways with Megaforce Records. On September 12th, they signed with Electro Records. And by the end of 1984, that album had sold about 85,000 copies, peaked at number 100 on the Billboard 200, uh, all with zero airplay. Yes. Zero. Zero. Radio None. exposure. Uh, but, they uh, were basically the biggest, w- world's biggest cult band at that yeah. point. Yeah, and I think that... Uh, I- one of the big things that happened was when Electra picked them up, they re-released the album. So it was released once with, I think, like sixty-five or 75,000 copies. And then when Electra picked them up, they said, you know what? We're going to re-release this album. I think that helped them a ton because those minimal releases of the original, I don't think if they had been successful or gone anywhere, I think Metallica would have faded out. I think so, I too. I think they would have faded to black. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. But because Electra was smart enough to re-release it and print a lot more copies of it, I think that they were much more successful. Uh, so much so, in fact, this album had gone gold by 1987. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 2012, it was certified six times platinum by the RIA. Right, and named the 11th greatest metal album of all time. Yeah. So significant uh, uh, achievement. So before we talk about cover art track by track... I think we need to talk a little bit about uh, the primary demographic of the band, as okay. you spoke, so, yeah. or, or at least into the early 90s. Yeah. So I would say most of its audience was white, disaffected, suburban, adolescent males. Okay, yes. Uh, at least that was my experience. Chuds. This, oh, no, that's a different thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> this music, thrash metal, had a certain appeal to that group in a way that a very a uh, particular subgenre music hadn't really been that specific before. Um, it was not only a subgenre of metal, but it also had its own subculture. Um, when we did, like we said, we, when we did a Marillion episode a few weeks ago, we talked about the devotion of the fans. Yeah. Metallica fans, more specifically, thrash fans are crazy about their information, about their opinions, and about their music. And for a while, Metallica was the peak of that genre in terms of sales, not necessarily the musicality. So I was not a fan of thrash metal back in the 80s. I liked some of it, like Anthrax, but that was more for the crossover appeal of Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. Um, I was not into Slayer or Megadeth or Testament or bands like that. I did have an affinity for more melodic heavy metal, like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest, but that was about it. So Metallica was intriguing to me, but not enough to listen to it on any sort of regular basis. I, you know, I'd heard it at a friend's house and some other people would try to get me to listen. I kind of ignored it. I heard the quote unquote hits like For Whom the Bell Tolls from this yeah. record, Master of Puppets, Seek and Destroy from the first record. Um, that last one I actually learned to play for a high school uh, pep band performance. Ooh. Uh, so in the summer, yeah, right. In the summer of 1988, I attended the Monsters of Rock concert at the Pontiac Silverdome. Um, on the bill was Kingdom Come, Dokken, Scorpions, Van Halen, and Metallica. Ooh. Being held at the, Su- the Silverdome, the concert was mainly going to be held in daylight. Uh, the roof of the now-demolished stadium was more like a parachute. Uh, it was white. The stadium utilized natural light for daytime activities. Ooh. Uh, so, so being this was July, the sun was out in Michigan until 9 p.m. So all but the last band, that was Van Halen, would be in daylight. Um, we were in the lower bowl, and you could see everyone because it was daylight. So down at the end of the row we were in uh, was a young dude, probably 16 or so of my age at the time. He had a really bad bowl haircut. <laughs> he was a little overweight, and he was also by himself. Uh, he had a black T-shirt on and jeans and never left his seat for the first two bands, those being Kingdom Come and Dokken. 
Uh, he sat patiently through them, not really interested, just sipping a Pepsi. Uh, and it was weird to me because I was there with four or five other people. Uh, most people had come in groups, and here he was all by himself with this little halo of space around him, one or two seats on either side. So after Dawkins finished, there was about 30 minutes between bands, and he seemed to shift in his seat and move forward as Metallica got closer to showtime. Right? They opened the show with a recording of Ecstasy of Gold by Enrico Morricone, the great movie composer. Yeah. Uh, and launched into a song from Ride the Lightning called Creeping Death. And what I witnessed was unlike anything I had ever seen at all of the many rock shows <laughs> I had seen before. The sea of dudes almost instantaneously exploding into this wave of energy and headbanging. And it was a little bit intimidating that all of these people were having this very shared experience. Uh, my brother was with me, uh, and we locked eyes, kind of shrugged at each other, like, what the hell is this? And down the row from us was that kid who had been so isolated and distant, and he was a fury of headbanging in his seat, furiously air drumming, sweating, and part of this collective. He had gone from the alone to the one. And they were all part of it. And it dawned on me that a lot of the fan base, I think, are those kids that don't fit in, aren't popular or cool kids. And they find in this music a shared experience and a cathartic release of those feelings of being left behind. We talked about how 21 Pilots fans have that connected experience. Uh, so do the metal kids. Yeah. They have a common language, a necessary devotion to these things, and a feeling of ownership and exclusivity. This is our thing. It's not popular. It's not mainstream, but it's ours, which in the grand scheme of Metallica's existence also explains why when they did achieve mainstream success and change their sound that these kids were pissed yeah, and labeled with that worst of all labels, sellout. <laughs> I just think it's a fascinating phenomenon that I hope we're going to explore more in this episode. I just wanted to get that off my chest. I think we'll talk chest. about it a little bit. And that brings up a good point. Uh, do you know about the eras of Metallica? No, that, not that specifically. Is, that is yeah. E-R-A-S, not no. uh, errors. Errors. Um, <clears throat> in my opinion, and in my experience, every Metallica fan divides Metallica up into different eras. So some people are like, man, Metallica's only hasn't been good since, uh, you know, uh, the Metallica album. Uh, they haven't been good since Kill 'Em All. The first album was the best, and all the rest <laughs> have sucked. Or you know, some people are like Saint Anger is the only real album. All the rest is shit. Who says that? I weirdos apparently. <laughs> but I have found that every single fan breaks Metallica up into these different eras of Metallica and says this era is my era of Metallica. I like the songs mm. from this era, and everything else is shit. That happens with Rush too. A lot. Oh yeah, that, that just happens with that like. I don't care for their keyboard, period. Right. It's like, shut up. It's the same band. However, I have done the same thing. Oh, my God. I have. I split it up into five eras. I you believe this up shit, Randy? Eras. You believe this Randy shit? Randy is shaking his head. Yeah. He's very upset by this. But I did. Uh, to me, there's the pre-fame era, uh, which ends uh, when they signed with Elektra. That was, they were not yet famous. Everything before that was sort of demos and even kill them all was sort of in the original release of Ride the Lightning, mm -hmm. which isn't any different, but it was the original release. It's before they were really famous. The thrash metal era uh, is Ride the Lightning to Metallica, uh, those albums. Uh, it's very much heavy metal. It's very much thrash metal, and you know what you're listening to. Uh, the popular era, 
came after that, which was Load and Reload. Um, you know, they became popular. They were able to be, they were played on MTV all the time. They had tons of radio play. People who would never pick up a metal album picked up Load and Reload because there were songs on there they enjoyed. Yeah, all of a sudden, Enter Sandman enters the, the basically right? the popular culture. Right. Um, the, the next one I called the maid era, like a cleaning maid. Uh, oh. this is basically everything surrounding St. Anger. <laughs> And I call it the maid era for two reasons, because not only were they fucking cleaning up money wise, they were printing, they were printing their own money at this point. Uh, They themselves were also getting clean. Ah, I see what you did there. I see. I like Uh, it. I like it. And then the last era to me is the after party era. Everything after St. Anger is sort of an after party. We could do whatever we want. People are still going to buy it. Pretty much. Although I did like death. I thought death magnetic is a great album. It was actually a very good album. Yeah. And I'm not again. I'm not using that to knock anything. That's just how I sort of define them. Oh, I'm I'm knocking it. Let's talk about the cover to this album a little bit, should we? You probably know more than I do. Uh, I know it's a, a, a painting of an electric chair mm-hmm. floating in a storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got that classic Metallica across the top, right? Designed very, by James Hetfield. Yes, uh, very bold text. Uh, like you said, designed designed by James Hetfield. Uh, the concept for this cover was created by the band before the album came out. Uh, and you can well, obviously before the album came out, <laughs> before they created the album, we designed the album cover three weeks after the album came out. Yeah, you know, How weird. Do, you do that magic? No, it was designed by the band before they recorded the album. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of crossover between the Kill 'Em All album cover and this album cover. Mm. You can tell they sort of they were both designed sort of by the band. However, uh, credited for the design is Ad Artists. I couldn't find anything about that. I could not either. I have no clue if that's a company or if it's some kind of a Right. This is the whatever. only thing they're credited. This and a couple of reprints in the 2000s yeah. of this same record. Very weird. Um, there's a bunch of inner sleeve photos, uh, yeah. all in black and white. Um, Finn Costello did a black and white photo of the group. Um, Anthony D. Samella did the, a live shot of the group and Robert Hoytnick, Hoytink. Did the dressing room shot that's in there. Finn Costello, very famous. He took a bunch of pictures for Rush, too. Yeah. Um, the back cover has uh, uh, some photos as well. Uh, Pete Cronin took a picture of Lars. Rick Brackett took a picture of Kirk. Uh, Harold Oyman took a picture of Cliff. And Rick Brackett took a picture of James. Why do they all have different photographers? I don't know. And that's why I specifically listed it. Because I was like, why in the fuck is every <laughs> single photograph on this album cover by a different person like you couldn't pay one person to just be like click 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 right we're all in the studio today all right i'm bringing a photographer in yeah. we all just have to step no, out it's like it's like we're a, each bringing in our own photographers it's like team baseball pictures with the fo- photographers here you're up go by, yeah. stand by that tree take a bat take a picture walk away it's fucking weird man but this has sort of become an iconic cover for metallica this and kill them all with all the crosses, uh, the uh, tombstone crosses, yes, are two of probably the most iconic album covers that they have. You know, um, you don't care for the black album. I mean, it's black. It's got certainly. a little snake in the corner. Yeah, that's true, but it's, it's just tone black. on tone, so you can't really see it. Yeah, it's mostly black though. Uh, but there is a, a one unique thing that did happen with this. So the original pressings before they signed with Elektra in 1984, there was a French record label uh, named Burnett Records <laughs> that misprinted the color of the album in green. 
So rather than this blue color that the album is now, they printed 400 copies in green. Um, because of that, they're incredibly rare and there are huge collector's items. So if you have a copy of Ride the Lightning sitting on your shelf, go look at it. And if it's green, congratulations, you're rich. Congratulations, you just put your kids through college. Right? Why don't we, uh, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and do a track by track. Love it. Everybody feeling good now? Everybody ready to do a track by track? I feel better. Fight fire with fire, Matthew. Fight fire with fire. It's yeah. a very surprising start to this record. It starts out like ye olde metal song. It begins with a lilting acoustic guitar intro that immediately sets it apart from the last record, Kill 'Em All. Uh, according to Kurt Hammett, the intro was something that bassist Cliff Burton played, quote, all the fucking time. Yeah. He goes on to say that they weren't trying to provoke anyone with the style change. They just felt, as they should, just like 21 Pilots, that they could do anything they wanted with their music, so they were going to take chances. Yeah. And I think that's great. But it doesn't last for very long. No. Because it turns into a brutal, you know, what what might be one of the fastest songs of their entire catalog. I would say yes. You're probably right. First album was definitely thrash metal with some hardcore punk kind of mixed in. Mm -hmm. And this song, after the intro, seems to be the last vestiges of that sound. Yeah. Uh, the main riff of the song was written during the Kill 'em All tour, as I would imagine a lot of these songs are. Uh, lyrically, it is pretty typical mm -hmm. for James Hetfield. End of the world, apocalyptic Armageddon, and all that jazz. Yeah. And I mean, this was written at the height of the Cold War in the 1980s. And it's all a song about the nuclear, nuclear war causing... Mutually assured, oh God. Mutually? Mutually assured destruction. Yeah, the inevitable end of the world. Yeah, uh, you're you're obviously familiar with MAD, mutually assured, assured oh, I can't say it. Mutually, mutually assured, assured destruction. destruction. <laughs> For anybody who's not, uh, the idea behind it is that full-scale use of nuclear weapons by two or more opposing sides in a conflict would cause complete annihilation of all sides. Uh, it was originally coined by Donald Brennan in 1962, uh, ironically- to argue that holding weapons capable of destroying society was irrational. Mm -hmm. I can't speak tonight for some reason. I don't know what my deal is. Escalation. Escalation. Yes. I think a lot of times with Metallica, the sound of the music and the aggression in Hetfield's voice leads you to believe that they are pro-violence, pro-things dark. Uh, but in actuality, the song takes the stance that nuclear proliferation will cause nuclear war by yeah. itself. You know, I, and I really like the line... Time is a fuse, short and burning fast. I think that's a great line for any song, not yeah. even a metal song. That's just a great line. And, but but this, like you said, this is 84. Uh, there was the overarching fear uh, over all of us. I was yeah. 12 at the time that there was going to be a nuclear war at any day. We did. We practiced, you know, sheltering under our desks. Yeah, the old duck and cover. Uh, we, we wait. We huddled under our desks in middle school to protect ourselves from nuclear war. Um, I don't think that works. Actually, the desks were made out of lead at the time. Oh, yeah, so I'm sure they were. Protected you. I'm pretty sure everything was made Partially. out of lead back then. That's probably what fucked us all up. Oh, anyway. <laughs> but uh, uh, one of my ahead. favorite parts about this song, it is Kirk Hammett's first guitar solo on a Metallica album. Uh, and it sounds a little bit like this. Mm -hmm. 
so fast. It's a pretty good solo. Right? And it is just absolutely brutal. I love it. It's uh it's one of my least favorite songs on the record. Really? And I think I think the main reason I think it it's the main reason that I never really listened to this album much growing up. Mm-hmm. So the thrash was just too much for me. I really didn't like his vocal delivery on this song, that staccato, that fight fire with fire. I didn't really care for it. Um, so I rarely got past this song when I had the album in my hands. I would listen to the half of this song and be like, nope, not for me. And I, it's a shame because most of the rest of the record doesn't resemble this at all. Yeah. So, you know, that was definitely in 85, 86. This was definitely, that would be the reason why I wasn't listening to it. Uh-huh. So I'm like, I get halfway through this song and be like, mm, no. You know the uh, the five eras of James Hetfield, right? <laughs> There's five eras of James Hetfield. Are, there, are they separate of Metallica? They are separate. Okay, go on. Because they are a ooh, 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 eh, mm. <laughs> These are the five, because uh, you can tell in these albums, in the early albums, he's really high pitched. He's ooh. And then in the next ones, he's like ooh. And then in the next ones, he's like ooh. <laughs> and then kind of around the same anger, he's like meh. And then later, he kind of got back to ooh. Meh. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's uh, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about. <laughs> hadn't that. thought about it, but it's true. That's probably pretty but, accurate. Uh, I do like how this this song ends. You know, it's talking about world destruction. It's talking about mutually assur- assured destruction. Someday I'll say it right. Mutually mm, I don't know about that. assured destruction. Uh, and then at the end, you hear the sound of the bombs being dropped, uh, the sound of explosions, and then it leads right into the title track, "Ride the Lightning." <laughs> title track of the record Mm -hmm. first time the band decided to foray into the political arena taking on capital punishment yeah uh written from the point of view of a man wrongly convicted of a crime and walks through his last moments from being strapped into the chair to the juice being turned on it's a pretty visual song yes when you break those lyrics down pretty good stuff right there and it's a hell of an indictment with just one line who made you god to say i'll take your life from you that is really good That's the primary argument, right? Eye for an eye. Yeah. The argument always being, if we execute someone who is convicted of killing, aren't we guilty of that as well? And even worse, because it was done with malice and the ability of reason to determine if it's right and wrong. It's pretty heady stuff. I love it. It makes you think. It's, uh, like I mentioned, or I may have not have mentioned at this point, the title of the album uh, was taken from The Stand. Yeah. By Stephen King, when Hammett was reading the book during rehearsals. The line is actually from the book... Why, then you go on to death row at state prison, enjoy all that good food until it's time to ride the lightning. It won't be long. That's the actual line from the book. One thing that I was a little disappointed with in this song, they never mentioned the term old Sparky, but (laughs) that is the term that I've always used- For the electric chair? To refer to the electric chair. But I found out something. Old Sparky. Old Sparky is the nickname of the electric chair- the electric chairs, excuse me, in Arkansas, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Nebraska, New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, Virginia, and West Virginia only. What do they old, call them in other states? Old Smoky was the nickname of the electric chairs used in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Alabama's electric chair is named Yellow Mama. <laughs> and Louisiana's is named Gruesome Gertie. Oh, I like that one. That one. I like that one. Gruesome Gertie. <laughs> Right? Alabama's right. Yellow Mama? Yellow I Mama. Know, I think that was left out of my uh, viewing of uh, My Cousin Vinny. Right? But here's, uh, here's a little uh, snippet of this song. Uh, 
that is such a hard opening to a song. It's a great. Riff. It just immediately starts out with that. What was it again? Got it. This is one of only two songs left on this album credited to, credited to Dave Mustaine. Yep. So um, songwriting credit. Yeah. Uh, one of the riffs in this, uh, he for sure created, uh, but it was heavily simplified in the final version of the song. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this song is I really the the tempo change uh, starting at about two minutes in, where it gets really fast and then it gets slow again, mm-hmm. and then it leads into this, another great guitar solo, and that sounds like this. pointed out earlier yes that all of the clips that i picked for this album uh there's only a couple that have vocals in them and i don't mean that as a knock to james hetfield but i really feel like to me these you hate james hetfield i hate huh? james hetfield that's it uh no the standout to me in metallica is the guitar playing yeah to me that is what sets them apart to yes to some degree they, this is where i start to dig on metallica a little bit more this song it's got that that mid-tempo piece that kind of jumps around a little bit it's way more my speed until the guitar solo kicks in. <laughs> and it's a great guitar solo. It's everything you want in a shredder solo, right? Speed, hammer-ons, tapping up and down the fretboard. And I know what Hammond is doing is great, but if you could listen to what bassist Cliff Burton is during is doing during that solo, mm-hmm. good lord. It <laughs> is absolutely crazy. And I think I think I got more familiar with this song more recently because for a while it was one of three songs by Metallica that had appeared on the Rock Band video game. Yeah. So I'm sure the kids were playing it, and naturally it uh, kind of seeps into your brain. Um, but for whom the bell tolls. Yeah. This uh, this album does have a few, I don't know if you can really call them hidden bass tracks. Oh. Because you can hear them. He's nuts. But if you really pull the bass out and just listen to the bass tracks, amazing. Uh, mind-blowingly amazing. Absolutely. And I, I'm sure there's some YouTube videos out there that have done that. I haven't looked any of them up, but I'm sure somebody's done that. That's just solo the bass? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, you were saying, for whom the bell tolls. I was. This is for sure one of the band's biggest hits. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's weird to use that word because they didn't really have hits for a while. Yeah. Certainly one of their more recognized songs and one that is absolutely a concert staple. And it literally starts with a bell tolling. Right. <laughs> That wasn't a bell, though. No, it was a sound effect. It was a anvil yeah. being struck by Lars in the uh, in the studio. But uh, again, oh, now see this might uh, this might come back to uh, what I had heard. It was actually a canned sound effect that they found. Uh, no, I oh. have. Uh, it's actually an anvil that Lars was beating in the studio. Apparently, you just have a uh, you know, anvil have an laying anvil. around. But uh, Fleming Rasmussen. Uh, confirm that it was an anvil. Oh, interesting. It is metal after all. Yeah, that's true. Because uh, um, 
Oh, crap. Now I'm drawing a blank. What's the ACD song? ACDC song? Hell's is? Bells? Hell's Bells. Thank you. I could not remember that title for the life of me. Have you heard how they got their bell sound? I don't recall. They picked a specific church bell. They had it made for them. They had 15 microphones, each of a different type, to record 15 separate tracks of the bell being struck, and then they mixed it down to make the perfect bell sound. Sounds like a waste of money. And then Metallica used this. (laughs) Metallica's like, there's an anvil in the barn. Right? Just wheel that into the studio, and we'll just smack it. Works for me. Right. So again, the band goes back to the literary well. Yeah. So, so far, the Bible, Stephen King, and now Ernest Hemingway. Right. And his book at the same name, For Whom the Bell Tolls. That book was about the Spanish Civil War Mm -hmm. and the process of death in war. Uh, The book was released in 1940. More specifically, the song takes from chapter 27 of the book in the retelling of the story of a group of soldiers uh, that stole horses um, and they were chased up a hill where they are obliterated by an airstrike at the top of the hill. Uh, lines like, quote, men of five still alive through the raging glow, gone insane from the pain that they surely know. For Whom the Bell Tolls is a wonderful book if you've never read it. It's, it's, good. it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, a tough read, but it's very it's worth Hemingway. it. It's worth it. Yeah, I mean, it's Hemingway. But uh, anyone who's not familiar with history... For Whom the Bell Tolls is set in the Spanish Civil War, which was a precursor to World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, took place from 1936 to 1939, and it saw the Second Spanish Republic, uh, who was backed by many foreign fighters uh, and the Soviet Union, but technically not the U.S., um, and the Nationalist Faction, who were supported by Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy. Uh, they were fighting with one another. The Nationalists, led by Francisco Franco, won the war, um, and because of that— uh, Franco ruled Spain under a pseudo-fascist dictatorship until his death in 1975. That's a huge oversimplification of everything that happened in that conflict, uh, obviously, because I need to say it in less than two lines. Uh, But there were absolutely horrific war crimes that happened during the Spanish Civil War. And if you want to learn about them, there are tons of sources for it. There were also – there was a terrible amount of oppression and uh, horrible things that happened under Franco's leadership uh, from the end of that war until 1975 when he finally died. And democracy took over in Spain. It is a a weird gap for some reason in so many people's, like, you think of World War II. It started in 1940 or 1939 with the invasion of Poland. Ended in 45. Right? Well, no, it kind of started with the Spanish Civil War because it was the fascists fighting, you know, what would basically become the allies. Right. And Spain sort of stayed, quote unquote, neutral during World War II. I mean, they weren't, but they were. Um, And then after... While the rest of Europe, reconstruction, reconstruction, and all that era, Spain basically stayed fascist until 1975. <laughs> when I they, was three, by the way. Right, literally, their government fell apart after Franco died and had to be rebuilt as a democracy. So, yikes! And for some reason, that's one of those things that they, I maybe they just don't teach it in American history classes. So many people don't have any clue that that happened. Uh, yeah, because it's American That's history true. class. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, I know I'm Duh. talking about European history uh, on an American podcast. But, oh, my uh, God. But this is also, it is a what I refer to as a double tap title. Double tap? Double tap title. Because Hemingway got the title for whom the bell tolls from English poet uh, John Donne's 1623 sonnet titled For Whom the Bell Tolls or No Man is an Island. Yes. Do you know that sonnet? I do, but I didn't write it down, but I wrote down the reference. Oh, I did. Oh, did you now? It's only 14 lines, so bear with me here. 
no man, no man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Uh, if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thy friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So the opening part of that song is not a guitar, yeah, uh, but a bass. Cliff Burton played that opening part with Wawa and Distortion. It is one of the most unique parts of the song. Mm-hmm. That part had been laying around since 1979 when Burton played it with his previous band, Agents of Misfortune. <laughs> I think for a second we need to stop and talk about the influence of Cliff Burton oh, uh, yeah. that he had on this band. He was instrumental in shaping the sound of this record, of making the band more melodic and more complete players. He brought things to the table that the rest of the band was lacking, like music theory and <laughs> harmonics. Um, when they recorded Kill Em All, most of the songs were pretty finished demos by the time uh, he was involved. So this was his first chance to songwrite and be involved in that process, and he was excellent at it. Uh, it was, it's because of this strong songwriting shift that labels like Elektra began to take notice because this wasn't just a thrash band. This was a band with melodic sensibilities wrapped in a thrash covering. Uh, it would be many years before that sound was fully realized. Um, on September 27th, 1986, Metallica was traveling from a show in Stockholm, Sweden at 7 a.m. when the bus hit a stretch of ice sliding off the road uh, and ejecting Burton from the window of his bunk. Uh, the band, uh, the bus landed on top of him, killing him instantly he was just 24 years old, and that is awful. That is a, a fantastically tragic story, and it's... Terrible. It's terrible. It's horribly weighing on the band members as well, because have you heard the story about how they picked bunks? Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they, they were, they, like, drawing cards. Yeah, they drew cards out of a deck of cards, yeah. and Cliff picked the high cards, so he was like, I'm going to sleep in the top bunk, or right. whichever bunk yeah, and it Kirk's was. like, fine, take yeah. my... He wanted Kirk's bunk, That's and he's it, like, yeah. I want your bunk, and he's like, fine, take my bunk, I'll sleep at the front of the bus. Yeah, and had that not happened... Things yep. would be very different. Or the guilt. The yeah, guilt, I it, would imagine, is absolutely crushing. And he is obviously, he talks about this a little bit in- uh, The documentary? Yes. Some I, Kind of Monster. Some Kind of Monster, yeah. thank you. Uh, he talks a little bit about it, how how it was. It weighed on him for years, and he had to talk to psychologists and, and get over the survivor's guilt of it. Uh, absolutely. And there's also a tragic recounting of that night that he talks about. And he says, you know, the bus driver was over, and Cliff was- basically dead underneath the bus and the bus driver was trying to pull a blanket out from underneath him to use to cover up somebody else who was injured really badly. Yeah. And Kirk was like, stop it. Stop fucking around with him basically. Right. And the bus driver wouldn't, he's like, we have to get this blanket. We have to get this blanket. And he didn't know, you know, at the time he's like, we all survived and he didn't. And it was obvious that he didn't because he was literally pinned underneath a bus and you could see his legs sticking out. Right. And it is just like, whoa. Yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can find the link uh, to that story and put it in the show notes because it's uh, pretty tragic. Story. It's very tragic, but worth a read to just 
hear what actually happened from, sure. from the mouths of the people that it happened to. Yep. Of other things, you have more? No, I was just going to say um, for this one, uh, this is also sort of the, I don't know if it's the first, but it's a very early example of a Metallica staple. The very long intro. Oh, yeah. This intro, <laughs> this intro is two minutes and six seconds long out of a five minute and 10 second song. A lot of, a lot of build up. A lot of build up. Gotta slam that anvil for a couple right? of minutes. But uh, I, li- I like it. It's a uh, it's, it's a great it builds song. Anticipation. A couple of other things to uh, note about this song. Apparently, there's an f bomb in the song at the two fifty mark. Ooh! I tried to hear it, couldn't find it. Uh, it's not that big of a deal anyway. There are tons of f bombs in music mm-hmm. nowadays, but this was 1984, and that's still pretty rare. Uh, the other note I had was that the Chicago Bears of the NFL use the bell tolling sound at their home stadium, Soldier Field, every time the team scores a touchdown, which these days isn't the too often. National Fartbox Puncher League. <laughs> I, recall I believe that is what it's called. Oh, wait, one more. In your research, Kyle, have you come across the cover band Beatallica? I have not. So they blend songs of both the Beatles and Metallica together, and it's really good and oh. really weird. The cover song for this one is called For Whom Michelle Tolls, <laughs> which is very smart. So uh, check it out if you haven't heard it. It's really interesting. They do that for a bunch of stuff. It's really fascinating. Cool. Yeah. That sounds really good, actually. <laughs> uh, and now, Fade to Black. Fade to Black. Oh. This is by far my uh, favorite song on the album. Oh, really? A ballad? Uh, For sure, one of my favorites of all of their catalog. This song actually charted on the Swiss chart and was certified gold by the RIA. Powerful ballad about suicide. Mm -hmm. Uh, One in which the main character in the song actually completes the action. Yeah, and then regrets it. This song has been uh, long been controversial for a myriad of reasons. Uh, That one that I mentioned being one of the reasons. Uh, this was certainly one of the songs that was attacked by the PMRC mm-hmm. when the music sem- censorship issue was just starting to explode. Uh, there were kids that were being found dead by suicide with copies of the lyrics from this song and songs of this nature near their bodies. And parents were trying to sue the band for their influence on these young minds. And I've said before uh, many times, if these kids were being pushed to the brink by anything on these records, then the problems they are having have existed for a long time. And the parents need to take a good hard look at themselves and their culpability at not knowing the warning signs long before. Yeah. Uh, this stuff always gets picked up and mentioned in the press. Uh, but what wasn't being covered were the countless letters the band was receiving and still receives from people who found solace in these lyrics and used the lyrics to help rescue them uh, from the abyss. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I need to say, but I will anyway, that if you're struggling, with mental illness and feelings of suicide, don't wait. Call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline right now. We music it, music focuses so much on emotion, and we run into this on audio judo a lot. Yeah. That that hover around uh, depression and feelings of 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 loss and suicide and stuff like that. So we bring it up several times on this show because it's it's important. It's it's definitely feelings that people are dealing with yeah uh, so um go ahead oh that's i was right there with you i was just gonna say that i'm glad you brought that up i was gonna make sure that it ends up in the show notes as well okay good uh so the other reason that the song was so controversial was how polarizing it was for metal and metal fans mm-hmm. so this is a ballad on a thrash record 
Slayer didn't put out ballads. Right. Uh, there's this thought that these bands had to be one-dimensional, you know, that they could only rock as hard as possible without letting anything else in. What made a Metallica as successful as they have been is their ability to tap into the softer side of their emotions, not to just focus on the aggression, but also the sensitivity. And maybe that's why I started to enjoy the music more as they got a little bit more mature. It's true that the song deals with suicide, but it was actually written in response to a lot of their gear being stolen after a, a gig in Boston. Yeah, including James Hetfield's, the first amplifier he had ever purchased, which he loved and loved to play on, was uh, stolen. And I don't think, I could not find any information. I know he's had a bounty out to For, get this back. Right, that Marshall amplifier, Basically yeah. since then, and I don't think it's ever turned up. Well, it was, but, it was given to him by his mother. Yes. And she had... Right before she passed away, mm -hmm. um, and it, the song—if you—if you break it down, it's—it's <laughs> it's more than just about suicide. When you read it, the the lyrics, things not what they used to be, missing one inside of me. That missing one is obviously his mother, and he is dealing with that grief, and it's just shadowed by the rest of the subject matter, which is quite obviously suicide. Yeah. Couple other notes about this song. The, this was the song that was being performed in 1992 in Montreal when there was an accident with the band's pyrotechnics. Yeah, ended up causing pretty severe second and third degree burns to lead singer James Hetfield. Uh, luckily, his guitar had protected him from the main thrust of the flame, which probably would have killed him. Uh, but he was hurt pretty bad. He was back on stage though, 17 days later, but was relegated to just singing for the next four weeks of the tour. This is notable, and I bring this up because this was during the Guns N' Roses slash Metallica tour, and it was filled with conflict because GNR, more specifically Axl Rose, was notorious for being extremely late to the stage yeah. or not showing up at all. Uh, it drove the guys from Metallica nuts because they were professionals. We, we came to deliver a show. That's what we're going to do. And they never took for granted that people were paying to see them and wanted to give them the best show that they could. And it was so bad that GNR didn't make nearly as much money as they could have on that tour because they were fined heavily every time they were late <laughs> hitting the stage. And I think that's, you know, Metallica, like this guy got second and third degree burns and he's out 17 days yeah. to recover and then... They bring a roadie in to play the guitar parts, and he sings. And they're like, we're not skipping shows anymore. I think that's important. Yeah. Uh, one last note. This was the last song that Cliff Burton's replacement, Jason Newstead, played with the band. Yes. And apparently it was an incredibly emotional performance. I can imagine. Uh, I mean, he was absolutely just tearing up by the end of it, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he played with the band from 1986 to 1999. Yeah. I mean, and that was the, that swath where they sort of went from being somewhat popular to one of the bands right. of the world. World so, Conquerors. Yeah. It also appears in the Guitar Hero video game. Yeah. And it's pretty fun, actually. I, I love the guitar solo in this uh, at around five minutes and 20 Me seconds. Me too. What it does it sound like? It sounds like this.
that long, long slow fade out at the end there. Right? Solve. Yeah. And that's that's from the track. I did not add that. Oh, no, Randy I know. I listened to it just, again today. And I'm like, well, that fades for a really long time. It's like a 15 or 20 second fade. It's great, though. I love it. But uh, yeah, I think Fade to Black is probably, well, For Whom the Bell Tolls might be the most famous track from this album. I think Fade to Black is the most lasting track I agree. from this album. And it's probably the one that's gotten the most plays. So. That's why it's my favorite. Right. Uh, Matthew, do you ever feel like you're trapped under ice? All the time. What is this song even about? You, is this a really great metaphor for something happening in your life that you can't escape? No. no. I, think, I think they're just somebody trapped in a lake under some ice. Oh. This song is actually about a guy who's cryogenically frozen. Ooh. And wakes up while he is in ice. What? And can't escape and has no way of letting anyone know that he is conscious. Where did you find this information? That sucks. Actually, that was on the Metallica wiki. Oh my god, how did I miss that? <laughs> Took it right out of the wiki. Wow. The fan wiki. So I think this is a good time to bring up uh, what we were talking about a little bit earlier. <laughs> what? So do you think... What were we talking about? Well, we were talking about how um, metal and prog rock... Do you think that uh, you know prog rock is all about these deep meanings and, and everything has multiple layers you know mm-hmm. the, the frog prince had a merry time in jolly old england and i have that record it's right in here right? the one that you just sang you I know have but, it. but then it turns out it's, it's from like, the jethro toll record the frog prince is actually prince philip and merry old england is in fact england under the thatcher years you know and then but then if you you analyze it even more margaret thatcher the milk snatcher milk milk (laughs) prince philip's favorite drink you got it milk also comes from breasts breasts are what men like oh deep that is deep. deep um so what are you saying metal on the other hand a lot of times just surface trapped under ice. Oh yeah, it's somebody trapped under ice. Right, who's totally conscious and can't escape. Yeah. So my question for you is, do you think that uh, metal and prog rock are opposite ends of the same spectrum? I think they can be. Or are they intentionally not on the same spectrum? Mm, I I don't know, cuz there's some of that in in metal, the same thing. There's some bands that I used to listen to that did the same shit that like that. They're fairly deep. Yeah, like we're trying to trying to really get down to the Real issues here. I don't know, but uh, interesting. This is a concept that they would, uh, you know, revisit a couple albums later with the song "One." Yes, that dealt with the soldier who was pretty much a brain and torso and had no way to communicate. He was tortured by what was happening. Similar thing with this. They're just trapped under ice. They're they're awake, but they can't let anyone know. So that's awful. They were definitely preoccupied with uh, death and near death and anything surrounding death. You think? So uh, death, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Apparently, the song was inspired by them uh, watching the Disney movie Never Cry Wolf, <laughs> in which the main character falls through the ice and becomes trapped under the ice. Ah, uh, yeah, very deep, right? Musically, it borrowed heavily from a song Hammett recorded with his previous band Exodus. Uh, again, it's not one of my favorites on the record. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the frenetic pace of the song, like the opening number. Uh, that style just didn't resonate with me, especially, and it doesn't does even less now that I'm older. Yeah, and clearly, this isn't a favorite of the band either, as they have only performed this song 21 times live. Mm-hmm. However, it is an absolute face melter. Oh, it's it a melter. Sounds a bit, a little bit like this.
Trapped under ice. They are trapped under ice. Literally. Literally trapped, trapped under, under ice. ice. After that, though, they escape. Ah. They escape from under the ice. This is supposedly James Hetfield's least favorite Metallica song. He said in a video interview with Sopitas, which is a Spanish-language music YouTube channel. It's the song that the band loves to hate. Or So You Think. Yes. Quote, uh, this was the first time we wrote a song in the studio. I remember we had all the songs and Lars said, they want us to record one more. They need one more for the album. I was like, you didn't tell me that. So we had to write it and really last minute. (laughs) So Escape was one of those songs that was written in the studio. I think it's absolutely hilarious that these things tend to take a life of their own. Right. So legend has it that the record label wanted to force the band into recording, quote, more friendly material, mm-hmm. radio friendly material in the vein of Maiden or Priest or something like that. So this is their attempt at doing that. And the myth grew that they hated this song and would not perform it live. In fact, the only time they did perform it live mm-hmm. was in 2012 when they performed the entire album, Ride the Lightning. And James went to the mic and said, quote, the song that we never wanted to play live ever is now on the set list. Mm -hmm. And he would go on, like you said, to say it was one of the worst experiences of his life. Yeah, Kirk Hammett said said to Rolling Stone, quote, "Uh, when we played Escape on the Orion Fest, we collectively agreed why we never play that song. It's not really a great song to play live. It's in the key of A, like the Call of Cthulhu uh, and Metal Militia, but the key of A doesn't really work well for us for some reason or another. So fans don't like it either. Right. And, And again, that sellout word keeps popping up. Right? I mean, listen to this. This sounds like a sellout song. If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. Uh, I think I made a mistake there. That is not the right escape. That's the escape the pina colada song. Oh. Uh, sorry about that. This this is escape. I have to change my notes. So, Matthew, you said you had a hard time telling the difference between those two clips? I, I couldn't tell the difference. Oh, all right. Well. So, so sellout, right? But after all that, in an interview, Lars had this to say about the song. It's become this folklore that I hate escape. <laughs> it's not true. It was the last song that was written for the Ride the Lightning sessions, and it was purposely kept a little shorter than the other songs. We thought of it in the spirit of Iron Maiden's Run to the Hills or Judas Priest's Living After Midnight. Dare I use the word radio songs. So instead of turning it into an eight-minute seek-and-destroy type of thing, we kept it on the short side. Then it got a bad rap, and I don't know why. I don't have a particular problem with it. 
but it never became a live staple like the other songs on the record. It just goes to show that you're better off not trying to do things on purpose. (laughs) So there seems to be some confusion as to where this stems from. Maybe it's just James. But again, we James and Lars, best friends, clearly don't communicate with one another and disagree heartily about stuff. About everything. I don't think it's a bad song. No. I think it's actually pretty good. I can see why they don't like playing it live, but... uh, Is it because it's in the key of A? It's in in the key of A. I'm pretty sure that's why. Mm. No, I just don't feel like this would be a great live song. You know what I mean? Mm. I don't know. I just get that feeling from it where this is a great recorded song. I wouldn't care to hear this live, honestly. But you know what would be a great like live song? Creeping Death. Oh, this song. This. Oh, man. Great fucking song. Are you at all familiar with the Catholic Church, Matthew? Vaguely. Because <laughs> uh, this song is about everybody's uh, two favorite Catholic things. Charlton Heston? The Bible and death. Oh. Also Charlton Heston. <laughs> uh, he's fifth or sixth in that line. Oh. Go on. But obviously the title from this comes from the movie The Ten Commandments. Right. Uh, the lyrics are based on the story of the first Passover from the book of Exodus. Uh, and the guitar riff in the bridge was written by lead guitarist Kirk Hammett. But it was originally used in the Exodus demo song, Die by His Hand. Die by His Hand. Uh, Here's a little clip of that. Hammett told uh, Kerrang! I assume that's how it's pronounced. That is how it's pronounced. It's got an exclamation mark. It's got point. an exclamation mark, so you have to pronounce it that way. Uh, in September, September 2008, this, this song is one of his favorite Metallica guitar solos. Quote, there's a really raw, powerful energy to this one. It's exciting to listen to, and it's one that even to this day, I absolutely love playing live. My opinion, it's definitely one of the best solos a Metallica song has ever had. Yeah. So the guitarist from Metallica says this is one of Metallica's this is one. best guitar solos. This is the first and only commercial single released from this mm-hmm. record. And why not? As far as popular subject matter goes, the most popular ones have to do with being a a song told from the perspective of the angel of death describing the 10th plague of Egypt. So this song has repeatedly been called the best Metallica song ever. Rolling Stone has named it the sixth best Metallica song of all time. We don't count Rolling Stone. Eh, Guitar World magazine calls it the best ever. And I love this song. The middle chant, die, by my own hand, is so powerful in a live setting. I mean, it works great on tape, but live, the devil horns go up in the air, and it's a sea of headbanging. Again, back to that amazing collective experience. And like you mentioned, it's from the 1958 classic movie, Ten Commandments. They had all gathered at Cliff's parents' house to watch it. Uh, And it gets to the part where of the story where God commands that every firstborn son of Egypt must die. It shows death approaching as a low black fog moving slowly along the ground. That image caused Cliff to exclaim, it looks like creeping death. (laughs) And thus the song 
title was born. So uh, it's a fantastic song and a permanent fixture in the live set. Yeah. Being performed over 1,500 times since wow. they released it. Woo. That is bonkers. That's a lot of times. I was just watching the Ten Commandments over Easter weekend a couple weeks ago. And did you yell out that's creeping death? I really yelled out that's creeping death. No, I was surprised how well a lot of the special effects hold up. It's amazing. They are very good. Cecil B. DeMille's crazy. Bonkers. Sorry to go off on a tangent there. It's okay. But uh, it's better than The Call of Cthulhu. It's the final song on the record. It's the final song, and it's long. It's eight minutes and 54 seconds, and it's an instrumental. Originally named When Hell Freezes Over. Mm -hmm. Had been around in many forms since 83, before Cliff and and Kirk joined the band. Uh, It retains the last writing credit of David Mustaine. David Mustaine! (laughs) Yeah! You have to say it like that. I'm sorry. It's a legal requirement. You can't, if you say Dave Mustaine, you have to lean back and then go, Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine. It would be, I don't know why. Dave Mustaine. You have to. Dave Mustaine. It's a legal thing. I can't. Dave Mustaine. You have to do it. You have to say it like that? It's it's an old legal thing. I'm not sure where it came from, but uh, yes, you have to say it like that. It would be a renamed. The Call of Cthulhu, after Burton brought a book of uh, uh, stories by H.P. Lovecraft to the other guys in the band. Lovecraft's stories. Uh, Cthulhu is a powerful, godlike alien from another dimension who is worshipped by cults on Earth mm-hmm. who believe it is a demonic god. The song has various demonic growls and noises throughout. Yeah. Do you know why they spelled it differently? For pronunciation purposes, I believe. No. Oh, really? I got so, it wrong again? God not damn necessarily. It. Uh, that might be one of the reasons. But in the book... When you say or write the name Cthulhu, supposedly it brings the horror closer. Oh, boy. So, supposedly, Metallica spelled it differently, so they don't actually induce the horror. How true that is, I have no idea. Mm. However, on that same note, uh, just as a heads up to everybody, huge douchebag alert, H.P. Lovecraft, gigantic raging racist. Mm-hmm. Horrible. He's a horrible person. Horrible, super duper racist. Incredibly influential. Also super huge racist. Just thought I should put that out there before we talk about him. I think it's important to note. Yes. Uh, My favorite part (laughs) of this song is right at the end, that acoustic lead out, sort of fake out, and then a quick refrain of of some real metal. uh, Sounds a little bit like this. call that one the uh, the Andy refrain because you crawled through some shit to get there. <laughs> oh, you and your Shawshank Redemption. I know, I broke. love it. That's funny. Uh, this is the song that Metallica recorded with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra 
uh, for their 1999 album S and M, and that version is the one that won the Grammy for the best rock instrumental. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. This is another track that has a sort of quote unquote hidden bass solo uh, about a minute and a half into the song. Oh, the bass is so great. You got to listen real close, but it's there. Ooh, I love that bass. So that's it. That it's all is, about that bass. It's all about that bass. And that's it. That's Ride the Lightning. One of the defining metal albums in history, right? despite the polarizing opinion about the slight softening of their sound. <laughs> uh, it's a landmark album for the genre, and it put them completely on the map. Yes. Uh, I loved it. I, I appreciate you. Uh, Ooh, I, I was forced to listen to it. Again. I'm glad to hear that, because I, I honestly felt like you when our discussion before we started recording, no. I felt like you were going to be like, this is a piece of shit. Nope. But, no, I'll rarely do that. I'll do that. I'll leave that for Oasis. <laughs> uh, so if if you're new to uh, Audio Judo, thanks for tuning in. We're happy that you're here. If you want to hear more from us, uh, other than our regular episodes, we do have a Patreon account that provides additional content. Kyle, tell them Indeed what they get. Do. So if you want to sign up for five bucks a month to the front row seats tier, uh, you get two-day early access to every single episode, a uh, shout-out on a future episode as a loyal podcast producer, bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops, which are really fun. They're like five to 15 minutes, and they usually cover a subject that we couldn't cover in a full episode. Also, you get the occasional bonus content, such as uh, unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes, mostly uh, due to our flatulence. Mm. For 20 bucks a month, you can get to the backstage past here, which includes a very special personalized gift signed by Matthew and I. Uh, it also includes the chance to co-host an audio judo episode on the album of your choice. Uh, that activates after paying for this tier for one year, and you only get to do it once. Uh, plus, you get all the benefits of the front row seats tier. It's a, not a bad deal. Uh, especially, uh, I know we talked about this, uh, in an interview a couple of weeks ago, if you are an aspiring band and you want us to talk about your album, right? Sign up for a year and we'll be forced to talk about your album. Right. Even we'll, if it's terrible shit. We'll have no choice. Even if it's garbage. <laughs> even if it's garbage, we'll talk about it. And if you would like to get a hold of us, uh, yes. the easiest way is through Twitter. You can find us at, at Audio Judo. You can find us on Facebook at Audio Judo as well, or Instagram at Audio underscore Judo. If you want to email us, send it to info at audiojudo.com and we'd love to talk to you. Uh, don't forget to check out Audio Judo Does Jazz, which you can find at our website, audiojudo.com, or anywhere podcasts are podcast. Uh, we have new episodes coming up from Joy Division, U2, and a special episode about our favorite bands that only released one record. Oh, yeah. That one's going to be fun. That is. Until then, take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 